Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the fourth annual Walter F. Murphy Lecture in American Constitutionalism. I'm Robert George, Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, and I'm delighted to welcome you here uh, this evening. Uh, for those of you who uh, haven't heard the bad news, uh, our dear friend, uh, Walter F. Murphy, who has faithfully attended the Walter F. Murphy Lectures uh, so far, this time is unable to be uh, with us. He was very much hoping to be here. Uh, but uh, was hospitalized last week with relatively minor, thank God, relatively minor uh, uh, illness, but uh, he isn't well enough to travel. So he sends his uh, regards to, uh, to those uh, assembled. And uh, only slightly worse than not having Walter F. Murphy at the Walter F. Murphy Lecture is not having the Walter F. Murphy Lecturer at the <laughs> Walter F. Murphy Lecture. And alas, we do not have the Walter F. Murphy Lecturer. Professor... Lee Epstein, a very distinguished uh, public law scholar at the University of Michigan, has uh, uh, called earlier today uh, to say that uh, she had become uh, ill and had been hoping to make the trip despite uh, the illness, but uh, at the last minute it became clear that she couldn't. Uh, so she sends her regrets uh, uh, and a paper. Now, one thing uh, we could do is that I could read the paper. Uh, it's 100 pages long. <laughs> So I'm not sure that you want me to, uh, to read the paper, although I'm sure it's a very, very good uh, paper. So what we'll do is we'll make the paper available online uh, on our website as soon as we can uh, accomplish that. And people who want to hear the true Walter F. Murphy lecture for 2004 can, uh, can read it uh, online. So what we've got for you uh, today, I hope, is something that won't disappoint. Uh, I'm very grateful to my colleagues here. What we've decided to do is to stay with the subject of the effect of war uh, on the Supreme Court, or perhaps more generally, the Supreme Court and international uh, affairs, and call on our, uh, thank you, Judy, our, our wonderful uh, local talent, our wonderful local experts uh, in uh, public law and jurisprudence, to form a kind of uh, panel to discuss the issues. So uh, what we'll do is proceed a lot more informally than we uh, would if we had an official Walter F. Murphy lecturer. Uh, I'll introduce our panelists. Uh, each of them will offer a few minutes of uh, introductory remarks. Then we'll have a little give and take and then uh, open the floor. So I hope, I hope that despite not having either Walter F. Murphy or Lee Epstein uh, with us uh, this evening, uh, we can have a good discussion. Uh, I want, though, to say before beginning that we're very privileged to have uh, with us this evening uh, someone who, in a certain sense, represents the great tradition that we have in public law and jurisprudence. Uh, Walter Murphy, of course, it was the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence, the fifth in an eminent uh, line uh, that uh, began with Woodrow Wilson in 1897, and he was followed by W.F. Willoughby, who was followed by Edward S. Corwin who was followed by the great Alpheus T. Mason, who was followed by Walter. And we have with us this evening the daughter of the fourth McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence, uh, Mrs. Louise Mason Batchelder. And I ask you to join me in welcoming Mrs. Batchelder. It's a real pleasure to have her here. Professor uh, Mason still hovers. Uh, over public law at Princeton, uh, one of the true great figures, not only in the uh, field here, but in the field generally. Well, let me then uh, introduce our uh, distinguished panelists. Uh, first, Professor Christop Christopher Eisgruber, uh, who uh, is a professor of um, 
Public and International Affairs at Princeton and also Director of the Program in Law and Public Affairs. His research focuses on constitutional theory, religious liberty, legal philosophy, and adjudicative institutions. He's uh, published uh, scholarly works as well as contributions to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other newspapers, and has testified before Congress and our state legislature on issues related to religious freedom. Uh, he is a graduate of Princeton in physics, uh, went to uh, Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and earned his law degree at the University of uh, Chicago. Uh, was a clerk at the Supreme Court of the United States, I believe for Justice Stevens, and then before uh, joining uh, the faculty here, back at his alma mater, uh, was professor of law at New York University. And uh, we're all very proud of Chris, who was recently uh, elevated uh, to the rank of provost of the university, the second uh, ranking officer in the university. He will uh, replace, uh, succeed Provost Gutman at the end of uh, this year. So Chris is our new provost. Michael Gerhardt is Arthur B. Hansen Professor of Constitutional Law at William & Mary School of Law, where he teaches courses in civil rights, Congress and the Presidency, constitutional law, environmental law, and health law, to name but a few. He has also been with us this term, I'm delighted to say, as a fellow in the James Madison program. Professor Gerhardt recently served as one of the reporters of the Constitution Project's bipartisan studies of the constitutional issues implicated in the war on terrorism, so he certainly has something to say on the issues we have this evening. And I'm sure that many of you recognize the face when you see Professor Gerhardt there, who is someone uh, very much in the news during uh, the uh, controversy over the impeachment of uh, President uh, Clinton when he uh, was speaking as the nation's leading authority uh, on the subject of impeachment and the only witness, and this is really saying something, who was called by both parties to testify in impeachment uh, in, the, um, in the Congress, a true uh, tribute to his uh, objectivity and scholarly stature. Professor Ken Kurth is an assistant professor of politics here at Princeton and was in the inaugural class of fellows uh, of the James Madison program two years ago. His interests include American political and constitutional development, American political thought, legal theory, and politics and the courts. He was the recipient of the Edward S. Corwin Prize from the American Political Science Association in 2000 and has published numerous articles and reviews in political uh, and general interest journals and newspapers. His forthcoming book, co-authored with uh, Professor Ronald Kahn, is entitled The Supreme Court uh, and American Political Development. Professor Kirsch uh, is a lawyer as well as a uh, holder of a doctorate in uh, political science. Professor Colleen Sheehan is Associate Professor of Political Science at Villanova University, where she has taught since 1986. Her interests include American political theory and the ethics of Jane Austen. She is a former member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and of the Pennsylvania Governor's Advisory Commission on Academic Standards. She currently serves as president of the Pennsylvania Association of Scholars and a member of the Council of Scholars of the American Academy of Liberal Education. She is currently working on a book on James Madison's theory of the politics of public opinion, and she is doing it most appropriately. Uh, and I'm delighted to say, as a visiting fellow of the James Madison program. Professor Keith Whittington is associate professor of uh, politics uh, he is a graduate of, uh, holds a PhD from Yale University in the subject. Uh, he uh, is the author of two uh, very, very wonderful books in constitutional law and theory, uh, as well as numerous uh, articles uh, in leading journals in the field. Uh, Professor Whittington came to us from Catholic University of America a few years ago, and I'm delighted that he came to uh, uh, us. Well, okay, why don't we open the floor. We'll go in alphabetical order. Professor Eisgruber, you're first. You, to sit or stand? You, you can sit or stand, either way. The, the microphone's there. Go ahead. Okay. 
Well, uh, let, let me begin by saying what a pleasure it is to have a chance to um, participate in any event honoring Walter Murphy, uh, even if I'm doing so only as a uh, last-minute uh, pinch hitter. Uh, uh, I, I got my start studying uh, constitutional law and constitutional interpretation as a sophomore in Professor uh, Murphy's class. Um, that must be about 24 years ago uh, now, and so in very important ways, I owe my career to the inspiration that uh, he provided, and it's a privilege to um, uh, be a part of this event. Uh, the conventional wisdom about uh, courts in wartime is that you can't count on them. That is, that they will fold in the face of uh, security threats. Um, I want to give um, a brief set of reasons why one might be skeptical about that conventional wisdom. Hopefully someone later on in the panel will um, articulate the conventional wisdom, otherwise you'll doubt my claim that it's conventional, but uh, uh, at least in the sense that it's commonly shared. So I'm going to make three points. One is that I'm going to uh, talk about the reception of some of the important cases that the Supreme Court has uh, handed down. Um, uh, second, I'm going to talk about uh, legal techniques that uh, courts have used effectively in uh, wartime. And then thirdly, uh, since what I do is more prescription than description, I'm going to talk about the cases that are pending before the Supreme Court and that will be argued uh, later this uh, week. So here are those three points. Uh, first, about the reception of cases. When people lay out the conventional argument that uh, courts will uh, fold during wartime and not protect uh, civil liberties, what they do usually is trot out uh, a series of well-known uh, cases. Chief among those cases is the Korematsu decision from World War II, where the Supreme Court refused to intervene when the uh, government uh, interned Japanese-Americans, Japanese-Americans who were never shown in any way to be disloyal and who were given no individualized process uh, whatsoever. Cases like that one are uh, said to show that uh, courts can't be counted on to uh, intervene. What I want to do is, is, as I said, make a point about the reception of uh, these cases. And to do that, I need to mention uh, two others, two that are very recent and that I think provide reason for hope when uh, – talking about what it is that courts will uh, do. One of those is uh, a case called Youngstown Sheet and Tube versus Sawyer from 1952, a Korean War case, uh, where President Harry Truman tried to seize steel mills because there were labor difficulties, and he said, look, if they stop their production, we're going to be unable to supply our troops uh, in Korea. And so he said, for national security reasons, during an ongoing military conflict, I have to be able to seize these steel mills, steel mills, excuse me, Congress stepped in, or excuse me, the Supreme Court stepped in, that is when the case reached the Supreme Court, and, and uh, denied that the president had this authority. In that case, the court stood up to a president during wartime. Second case, and my favorite of these, and the one that I think is the most important for present purposes, the Pentagon Papers case from uh, 1972. Daniel Ellsberg had uh, obtained, uh, had uh, stolen, in the words of the government, papers from the Pentagon, uh, which contained information about uh, uh, the planning processes for uh, the American war effort in Vietnam in Southeast uh, Asia. The New York Times and the Washington Post had obtained those papers from Ellsberg and were planning to uh, publish those uh, papers. The uh, administration went to court and sought an injunction, and it's important that they proceeded that way. They sought an injunction from the courts uh, to stop the presses, saying that the release of these documents would disclose secrets that would endanger our uh, troops overseas. That case reached the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court refused to grant the injunction. The presses were allowed to roll. The uh, Pentagon Papers were eventually um, uh, uh, published. 
uh, and uh, the Supreme Court had taken an important position against the president uh, during uh, wartime. Now, the two major points about these uh, cases, one about the reception of, uh, of the cases, Korematsu and the Pentagon Papers are viewed very differently by almost every American lawyer looking back at those uh, cases. Korematsu is remembered as an example of courts yielding during wartime, but it is certainly not remembered as, uh, with pride as an example of what it is that courts had uh, done. Uh, unfortunately, um, Professor Murphy isn't with us this evening, so he can't correct me if I'm uh, wrong about this. But my recollection from his lectures 24 years ago uh, was that he reported he had done a study about the citation of uh, Korematsu and found that Korematsu was always cited on behalf of a proposition that Justice Hugo Black had in fact articulated in the opinion for the court before going on to ignore it. The proposition was that any racial category ought always to receive strict scrutiny uh, when uh, coming before the court. That is, it ought to be scrutinized very carefully and that in general racial classifications were presumptively uh, invalid. My recollection is that Professor Murphy said this showed the legacy of Korematsu, that is the penance being done by uh, judges and justices in later cases, was to acknowledge that what was true about the case was what Black had said in that phrase uh, and not what he later on went on to do, which was to uphold what the administration had done. I don't have to speculate with regard to uh, uh, Professor Murphy's views about the upshot of the um, Pentagon Papers case because I had time to look at uh, uh, actually the first edition, Murphy, Fleming, and Harris, American Constitutional Interpretation, uh, before coming over here. Uh, the, the editors, and I don't know if it's Professor Murphy himself, but the editors report about the Pentagon Papers that it was discovered after their publication that there was much embarrassing information in them about the way in which presidents from Eisenhower to Johnson had handled um, uh, American relations uh, with, uh, with and in Indochina, but no great military secrets were involved in the papers. That is, after the fact, it turned out that the executive had cried national security and that, in fact, what was in those papers were, uh, was political information relevant to the assessment of how our representatives were doing those jobs. So first point, the, Pen the Pentagon Papers and Korematsu are remembered very differently, and that's important to keep in mind when people start trotting out cases saying courts have failed us in wartime. Today's court has been educated in circumstances where what they've learned about are two different ways of viewing those sets of cases. Second point, a point about legal techniques in those two cases. When I make this kind of argument, uh, another person who taught um, uh, constitutional interpretation in the politics department here and had a big impact on con interp at Princeton, Sandy Levinson will often say, well, look, neither of those two cases that you want to rely on, Ice Gruber, neither of those two cases is really a case where the court stood up for individual rights. He says, in Youngstown, what the court said was that Congress had not authorized the seizure of the steel mills. And then he says, and in the Pentagon Papers case, there were only three justices who were willing to say on pure free speech grounds that the presses couldn't be stopped, Thurgood Marshall said, Congress hasn't authorized uh, this. Um, and Potter Stewart, joined by Byron White, offered an explanation that said, well, maybe the executive could just have gone in and seized the presses and stopped them himself. But he came to the courts first, and we're not going to help him out with an injunction. That's not our job. Our job is to protect speech rather than get in the way. So three justices relied on a separation of powers um, rationale. Sandy Levinson thinks that undermines the case for believing that courts can be 
effective participants in protecting liberties in wartime. I think it buttresses the case that courts can do that because it shows a technique that courts can use. That is, they can insist upon important protections that are uh, promised to us by the separation of powers. In particular, for example, in appropriate cases, congressional authorization. Third point, the case is now pending before the Supreme Court, and to bring this home in a way that shows how it matters, One of the cases that will be argued this week involves Jose Padilla, who is an American citizen who was seized at O'Hare Airport and is being held in the United States without any process uh, whatsoever. Americans seized in America being held in America without any process uh, whatsoever. The case, the question before the court is whether or not it's constitutional for the executive to do that. Now, I think one step the court can take and should take, it doesn't prejudice the ultimate question about whether this could ever be done with congressional authorization, is to say, as the courts did in Youngstown and in Pentagon Papers, this is being done without congressional authorization. And if this kind of seizure is appropriate, it has to be done on the basis of congressional authorization if it can be done at all. That's a very powerful argument in this case because when the president went to Congress and asked for passage of the USA Patriot Act, the president actually asked for the authority to detain not American citizens but non-citizens without any kind of judicial process. And even in the aftermath of September 11th, even when Congress was passing uh, the USA Patriot Act, Congress drew the line there. They said, even with regard to non-citizens, we can't allow that kind of summary authority uh, in this country. That is a powerful constitutional ground on which I expect courts can intervene and hope they will. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, it's always a challenge uh, to follow Chris Eisgruber, especially since he just gave my paper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's a great privilege to be here, and, I, and I'm uh, just sorry that uh, both Walter Murphy and Lee Epstein can't be here tonight. Uh, would have been a privilege to meet them both. Um, I want to follow up Chris's remarks by uh, actually not directly taking up his challenge to give the conventional wisdom but instead to suggest uh, different perspectives through which we might be able to understand the topic for tonight, and that is the effect of war on the the United States Supreme Court. We can answer that question in a number of different ways, and it might be useful for us to look at the different approaches uh, that are available for answering that question. Um, To begin with, one would be uh, an approach I'm sure our speaker, if she had been here tonight, would have advocated quite strenuously and provocatively. And that is the, uh, I'm talking about Lee Epstein, and she would have told us, I'm sure, um, more eloquently than I'm about to tell you, um, that the court acts strategically. Uh, And what that means is, uh, in effect, uh, that the justices essentially sort of uh, measure their strength, their position, um, their advantages and disadvantages, Um, against other institutions and making a decision about what to do. And the record in war is, I think, as uh, Chris has alluded, uh, that the the court will typically blink uh, because the pressures are such, the conditions are such during war, um, that the court is reluctant to put itself in the position of second-guessing military authorities, undercutting military policy, and making itself enormously unpopular by positioning itself against uh, the executive and perhaps legislative branches when the national security is at stake. Strategic concerns would seem overwhelmingly to counsel against 
the court's interference, even in the cases pending uh, today. That's one possibility. And I think there are enough cases um, that go on the other side of what Chris has suggested, cases like um, not just Korematsu, another case called Ex Party Quirin, case that deals with the Supreme Court's recognition that you can have an executive order that allows for the imposition of a death penalty against a United States citizen who's an enemy combatant. Um, Ex Party McArdle, dealing with the restrictions on appellate jurisdiction over um, people incarcerated without habeas corpus relief. Um, another case that also has come up, Johnson case, that deals with the fact that the U.S. jurisdiction, United States Supreme Court jurisdiction cannot extend over people who are not held under the control of the United States. That is to say they're, they're under sovereign control elsewhere, outside the bounds of the United States. Those cases alone um, would provide ample authority, of course, for the Supreme Court to follow a strategy of non-confrontation here. There's a second possibility. A second perspective is one um, that I'll simply describe rather plain, plainly as sort of the doctrine. What does the doctrine tell us we could do? Um, another way to think of that is to sort of pick an analogy. Which, which case does this most look like? Uh, do, I should say, which cases do the ones pending before the Supreme Court most resemble? Um, again, that's a, it's a, a, I think that's a little harder to answer than the strategic um, approach would be. Um, and what we're really trying to figure out here is how does the Supreme Court decide cases? How is it going to pigeonhole these cases? What approach will it use for figuring out how to pigeonhole these cases? Well, I told you strategy is one way. Second possibility is to say, well, does this look more like Quirin, for example, or Johnson, or McArdle, or Mulligan? Mulligan's a case out of the Civil War in which the Supreme Court, uh, dealing with somebody who's being held uh, without being given relief uh, for habeas, uh, the Supreme Court says as long as the civilian courts are open to such an individual, uh, Congress, or executive authority, I should say, can't deny that person access. Uh, to the civil uh, courts. Um, that would seem to be an encouraging case uh, for judicial relief here. Should this U.S. Supreme Court think that's a relevant uh, or analogous precedent? The question, of course, comes down to what will move it to consider or what will persuade it as to what's uh, the most analogous case. There's yet another uh, perspective, yet another strategy, or I should say approach available to the court, the third one. Chris has alluded to that. Um, and that is thinking about whether or not there's a congressional authorization available here that would buttress um, what the chief executive is doing. Chris alluded to Youngstown. Uh, he knows as well as anyone that in Youngstown, the most famous part of the decision is the concurrence by Justice Jackson. Justice Jackson talks about um, – just raise your hand if this seems familiar. No, just kidding. Um, Justice Jackson talks about the fact that in separation of powers disputes, particularly between the president and Congress, there are three different ways we can sort of look at it. The president is acting at his strongest when he's doing something that's supported by Congress. He's acting at his weakest when he's doing something that's directly contradicted by Congress. And then there's a twilight zone. So the, and that's what's in between those two other situations, just in case you didn't know. Um, and so the question, if you were asking Justice Jackson, is, okay, which is this? Keep in mind there's the joint resolution that gets passed. Is that enough congressional authorization to buttress executive authority here for the president to be doing what he's doing? The most, one of the most controversial things he's doing 
is the designation of U.S. citizens uh, as enemy combatants. That's a technical term that essentially, uh, uh, by definition, allows one not to be treated according to the U.S. Constitution and other civil protections of American law. So the trick is, how do you, are you able successfully to designate somebody as an enemy combatant if the president is able to persuade the Supreme Court that with the congressional authorization, for example, through the resolution and his own commander-in-chief authority, uh, perhaps um, he can successfully designate people as enemy combatants and otherwise restrict um, access to federal courts for every one of these individuals being held in custody. There is yet another possibility, and it's the one I'm, I'm going to end with, um, because I promised my friends at dinner I was going to be provocative. Um, it's counter, it's actually not characteristic of me to be pr provocative, but, you know, um, in the absence of Lee Epstein, I'll try. Um, and, and what I want to suggest is that one other option is always available to the court in a time of war. It's not necessarily an attractive option. Um, Justice Jackson says in dissent um, in Korematsu uh, that he would have preferred this case not come before the court. But if you're going to bring this case up, he said, I've got no choice but to declare this for what it is, and in his opinion it was unconstitutional. The rest of the court rejects that to the court's everlasting regret. But the option I'm talking about is for the court not to decide the merits of any of these cases. The option I'm talking about is the option we refer to as non-justiciability. To deal with this is a matter that simply does not rest within the court's domain. To leave this within the political authority's discretion because it's a matter of uh, military conflict, and in such a matter of military conflict, we're going to use a, follow a series of questions classically known as political question doctrine and conclude that on the merits, we'll let the political authorities decide, and then it's up to all of us that is to say you, to hold them politically accountable. Well, that was, that was I, I reserved the first question for myself to ask Professor Gerhardt. <laughs> Ken Kirsten, before I recognize Ken, I also have to correct the record. Uh, I'm, I'm in one very limited sense glad that Professor Epstein isn't here because she didn't hear me embarrass myself by associating her with the wrong distinguished Midwestern university. It's not the University of Michigan. Professor Epstein's at Washington University in St. Louis. Ken Kirsch. Okay. Um, well, our topic this evening is the effect of war on the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, and uh, by temperament uh, and inclination, uh, I am going to approach this from an oblique angle. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to talk so much about these terrorism cases, although I'd be happy to in, uh, during the questions. And I, I agree with Mike on a lot of this. So uh, uh, he, can, he can hold his own here. Um, but what I'd like to talk about is really the title of this uh, viewed from a broader perspective, right? What, is, uh, what effects has war had on the Supreme Court of the United States? Um, and I will sort of rehearse the standard account. The standard account uh, of the Supreme Court in wartime is that it should have exercised a judicial review in a counter-majoritarian fashion to protect basic rights and liberties. Uh, but in the context of war, uh, it cannot be counted on to do so. Um, now, in this uh, standard story, um, the court is acting in wartime sort of in lockstep with the state, right, with the national government, with national power. It's part of the regime, and it's defending the regime at a moment the regime is threatened. 
and there are certain emblematic cases that we, we tend to refer to uh, in thinking about the Supreme Court acting in this way. Uh, one is uh, Korematsu, which is associated with racism, uh, and others are free speech cases, uh, often associated with McCarthyism. Uh, and the case here would be uh, the Korean War case of, of Dennis, right? Cold War, Cold War cases. Um, and this is sort of a, 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 a liberal lament to, to draw politics into it, is that the court has not had the fortitude to stand up uh, in these particular cases. Uh, and this is ingrained in us, right, because of the story of 20th century constitutionalism, um, that the threat is that the court's going to give in to racism or oppression of free, free speech. Um, and these politics are easily aligned along a liberal and conservative axis, right? So the conservatives tend to defend state power in wartime, um, and in wartime the court becomes more conservative. Uh, liberals defend individuals against the state uh, and the principle of the rule of law uh, against the exercise of arbitrary authority in hysterical uh, wartime fevers. Um, so conservatives uh, defend executive power and discretion uh, against a strict adherence to the rule of law. Now, I think there is a lot of truth to this, um, but as someone rather sympathetic to executive power in wartime, uh, I would note that um, liberals, and by liberal here I mean in the you know, American sense of belief in individual rights and the rule of law rather than John Kerry or Mike Dukakis. Uh, <laughs> liberals, liberals have a difficult time thinking about executive power. Uh, they are mostly focused on, on the rule of law. Um, and one thing that we know about executive power in the Constitution it, is that it is meant to be particularly flexible. Uh, it, is, it is a power to do what is necessary when it's necessary. Uh, and we would certainly never want to forget about the rule of law, but the founders were also very careful not to hem in, uh, not to make clear what the limits were on executive power under these uh, conditions. Um, so I want to say that uh, in, in, um, in defense of, of a position that's a bit closer uh, uh, to Mike's. Um, but that said, I want to, uh, and, and here's the quirky uh, uh, part of this, right? Um, I don't want to just talk about judicial review and whether the court had the fortitude uh, or not to exercise it in these contexts, but I want to give you a couple quick examples of the way that war uh, shapes the goals of the central government beyond uh, a particular emergency and how the court relates to that. So Randolph Bourne, uh, you know, early uh, 20th century uh, uh, progressive writer, said war is the health of the state. Um, and um, I believe that when we talk about the effect of war on the Supreme Court, uh, we also should talk about the types of public policies um, that get enacted uh, in war and fuel state building uh, that later come to the Supreme Court and influence uh, the way the court uh, reacts. So just three quick examples. Um, uh, there are certain policies that other than in a wartime context, it is quite possible would, would not have gotten as far as they did, okay? Uh, one example, uh, and these are drawn from a book, uh, not the one Robbie mentioned, but the, uh, the, uh, my book that's coming out in July uh, that focused, I, I sort of drew out some examples uh, involving war. Um, World War I right, had a great effect on debates about setting up a national education system. 
Okay? People don't tend to know about this. Um, but basically, there was a lot of activity by the national government in the, in the time, in the context of the First World War, uh, involving taking over the railroads, administering the economy, uh, commandeering private universities, um, all sorts of policies uh, uh, that would not have been uh, enacted otherwise uh, that got enacted at the time of the war. Um, and also the draft and military readiness um, led people to believe that Americans were not adequately educated. Right? And uh, the draft was revealing uh, this through test scores and intelligence tests and things like that, physical fitness tests. Um, there was a sense that we were falling behind the Germans. And there was a strong movement to, to really decrease the, inf the influence of religious schools and private schools at the time of the war. And the Supreme Court in this case, this is never taken as a wartime case, uh, the Supreme Court, the conservative Supreme Court, stood up and said you cannot ban public education just because it's better for a stronger uh, central government. Okay? And the conservative Supreme Court did it, and the liberals, the progressives at this time, were very often on the other side. Second example, prohibition. Okay? People don't associate this with the war. And again, prohibition was kicking around for a long time uh, prior to this. But the war gave it an impetus that allowed it to be enacted. Right? Uh, this was by constitutional amendment. Um, so the court was not really able to do very much uh, with actually stopping prohibition. Uh, but one thing it did is, it, is that this, the fact that this policy got enacted drew the court into criminal procedure for the first time in an extended way in its history. So this is a quirky way of thinking about this, but without a war and without these policies, the court would not have taken these particular initiatives in areas uh, uh, that were uh, familiar to us. And um, another example uh, to, to cite the Cold War, uh, and this will seem like an odd example, but I, I really wanted to write this, but I was not, I didn't get around to writing it, so I'm just going to say it now, right? <laughs> um, the Pledge of Allegiance case, right? Now, there's, there was a lot that's been said um, about the pledge under God being added to the pledge in a Cold War environment, <clears throat> right? Uh, and this is certainly true. The under God part of the Pledge of Allegiance was added in the 1950s. Um, but what's not true and what really annoys me in, in discussions of this um, is that the idea that there has to be a really, really strict separation of church and state is also something that came out of the Cold War, right? And this came out of fears of indoctrination uh, in parochial schools by Roman Catholic teachers, right? And if you go through the literature at mid-century, there is a constant comparison between the Vatican and the Kremlin, right? <laughs> and, and education is the same as communist brainwashing, right? And this had a lot to do with the way the Supreme Court thought about the threats of religious education uh, and particularly the threat of Roman Catholic education. Right? It's very hierarchical, and students do not learn to think for themselves. Now, again, I don't want to imply that these ideas were not out there prior to the Cold War, but the Cold War and the heated environment of it lent them a particular uh, credence. And uh, if the topic is the effect of the war on the Supreme Court of the United States or wars, uh, I think that, that, uh, that counts uh, to a significant extent. So my plea here is really to say that 
Um, if, if we're really going to take our topic seriously, I, I certainly uh, agree that the issues of enemy combatants and things like that are important. Uh, but if we look at it from a long-term historical perspective, war has all sorts of effects on the way the court thinks about the world, uh, not only on the cases uh, and, and on the types of cases that come to it. Uh, and some of them do not arise out of the war itself, but out of public policies uh, that uh, became possible during wartime uh, that were not possible uh, in other contexts. And sometimes the court resists this. Uh, sometimes it is a liberal court that resists it. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it is a conservative court uh, that resists uh, some of these uh, infringements on civil liberties. And my plea is just that uh, occasionally uh, we, we think about it uh, in this broader way. Wait, how did you guys come up with this stuff and put it together in three hours? I mean, <laughs> three hours ago, these guys thought they were going to be sitting in the audience uh, tonight. Uh, Colleen Sheehan. Well, the bad news is I'm not a lawyer. The good news is I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I actually want to take a, not being a lawyer or even a teacher of constitutional law, I want to take a, a very different approach to this. And whether this approach fits these cases currently before the court is a separate question. But I think it's uh, worth considering um, not just <clears throat> uh, what are the options available to the court, and isn't the court standing up and having fortitude dealing with uh, the protection of rights, but also to consider politics and the recognition of what constitutions cannot do. In a series of cases currently before the Supreme Court, the court has agreed to review the question of whether the president, acting as commander-in-chief, has the authority to order the capture here or abroad of U.S. citizens, uh, to designate them enemy combatants, and to hold them indefinitely without legal rights. Included within the scope of this question is whether the 1979 law banning detention of U.S. citizens without explicit congressional approval is still binding. One commentator on the court has summarized the issue thus. Should there be a terrorism exception to the Bill of Rights? There are a myriad of issues and arguments that, are, that will be presented during the course of these cases. But one in particular, which is less technical but I, I think still important, seems to me to stand out uh, and warrant exceptional attention. In the current cases, the justices will examine and perhaps attempt a decision on the scope of presidential power in times of national emergency. The question I would like to raise is, can there be any constitutional limits on presidential power in times of national emergency? And I'd like to turn to the founding and particularly to Alexander Hamilton to consider this question. In Federalist Number 23, Hamilton wrote, it is impossible to foresee or define the extent and variety of national exigencies or the corresponding extent and variety of the means which may be necessary to satisfy them. Necessity, and he emphasizes this, necessity is admitted in all moral reasonings as an exception to general rules. <clears throat> necessity shows itself most powerfully in times of war. Indeed, war is a violent teacher. 
The extent and variety of circumstances which threaten the safety of a nation, Hamilton said, are infinite. And he argued, for necessity knows no bounds or laws. Quote, safety from external danger is the most powerful director of national conduct. When the safety of the political community is in imminent danger, there are no constitutional or moral limits which can be assigned in advance. In times of emergency and war, Hamilton wrote, the exigencies of a community are so various and often so critical that it would be extremely dangerous to prescribe narrow bounds to that power by which it by which it to be restored. The, the contingencies of society are not reducible to calculations. They cannot be fixed or bound, even in the imagination. Will you limit the means of your defense when you cannot ascertain the force or extent of the invasion? Written law, the interpretive province of the Supreme Court, is simply, quote, unequal to a struggle with public necessity, Hamilton argued in Federalist 25. His sanction of all prudential means necessary to deal with an enemy bent on inflicting pain, injury, or destruction to the nation and its citizens might seem by contemporary, some contemporary proponents of civil liberties as destructive of the idea of morality and human rights, not to mention law. Interestingly, however, Hamilton derived his understanding of presidential power during national siege or emergency from the theory of a law of nations which he emphasized in studying this, Vittel's work in this area, which further was derived from an understanding of the law of nature. Americans' claims to civil liberties and civil rights is ultimately to be found in the same source, i.e., the laws of nature and of nature's God. In Hamilton's conception and that of a host of 18th century thinkers on the subject, there is no inconsistency between dedication to the rule of law and protection of civil liberties on the one hand and the right and the duty of the chief executive in times of war or national emergency to take whatever measures are deemed necessary to protect from the citizens from those who would destroy them. This would necessarily include, in some cases, a suspension of civil liberties of those perceived to threaten the safety of the nation. And thus, so the law of nations is derivative of the law of nature. There is nonetheless a distinction between private rights and public good in, for example, Hamilton's thought. Of private and public good, the higher and more noble, Hamilton argued, is the public good. The good of the political community is greater than the good of the individual because, quote, the magnitude and importance of national compared with individual happiness and the greater permanency of the effects of national than of individual conduct. In this, Hamilton followed Aristotle's reasoning. Quote, for even if the good is the same for the individual and the state, the good of the state is clearly the greater and more perfect thing to attain and to safeguard. The attainment of the good for one man alone is to be sure a source of satisfaction. Yet to secure it for a nation and for states is nobler and more divine, unquote. The possibility of justice exists between and among all human beings, including non-fellow citizens. Our humanity confers upon us the duty to respect the rights of others. But even more so, we must care for the safety and good of our fellow citizens, which requires most immediately that citizens take care to preserve the nation. There is no citizen upon whom this duty does not rest. 
There is one above all, however, who is supremely responsible for the preservation of the nation when under threat of military violence. That, of course, is the Commander-in-Chief and President of the United States. Presidential action that may be required to protect and defend the nation cannot, even in imagination, be subscribed in advance, not in Kantian moral philosophy, nor in congressional resolution, nor even in the Constitution of the United States. The Supreme Court, it seems to me, should tread very carefully in its journey into the laws applicable to war. War is indeed a violent teacher. Okay, well, now we know why Jefferson feared a Hamiltonian president. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Michael said he was going to be controversial, and I couldn't (laughs) let that stand unchallenged. Well done. Uh, (laughs) Professor Whittington. Thank you. Um, I have actually owe a special debt of gratitude to Walter Murphy because it was his choice to retire that created the job opening that I was able to fill. So so I'm particularly uh, glad to be here tonight. Um, uh, I want to emphasize uh, two aspects of thinking about the court uh, in times of war and the effect of war um, on the court, uh, both of which relate to um, or thinking about this conventional story about the court blinking uh, in times of war and, and deferring uh, to the actions of other institutions. And I think it's worth emphasizing sort of two different dimensions uh, that might affect the court in, in its behavior during, the, during these periods. Uh, one is thinking about uh, the institutional capacity of the court. Uh, does the court have the ability to stand up uh, to other institutions effectively uh, during these times? And that's going to change uh, at various times and over the course of American history. Uh, the second, but secondarily is, um, is one of a substantive judicial perspective uh, on these conflicts. Does the court want to stand up uh, to other institutions uh, when these cases uh, come before? Does the court actually disagree with what the other institutions are doing uh, such that it might want to obstruct even if it had the power uh, to do so? And those are both, both worth considering because they both change um, over the course of American history. Um, among the very early conflicts in which the court was involved um, arose uh, in, in the first years of the Republic. Um, after the French Revolution, as the U.S. was increasingly uh, in tension uh, with the new French government, uh, the Federalist government of the United States uh, was increasingly gearing up for effectively an undeclared war uh, with France. There were increasing uh, conflicts uh, in, in, on the seas uh, between shipping between uh, the U.S., uh, and France, as France uh, was at war uh, with Britain. But there were also increasing internal tensions within the United States, uh, and the Federalist government was very concerned um, about um, other Americans who uh, favored the French and perhaps favored uh, ideas of the French Revolution. Um, and this, among other things, led to uh, the passage of the Sedition Act of 1798, which restricted uh, speech criticizing uh, the federal government um, between 1798 uh, in 1800. The act was actually set to expire uh, automatically after the elections um, of 1800, so a very carefully timed uh, piece, piece of legislation. Um, the courts were critical, um, the federal courts were critical um, to the Federalist implementation of the Sedition Act. It was the courts who were going to be charged uh, with enforcing the Federalist Act, uh, the Sedition Act, of actually uh, trying people and convicting them and putting them in jail uh, for criticizing the Federalist government. Uh, and the courts are very much understood as being the partner with uh, the rest of the government in implementing this act and building the strength of the national government 
uh, relative to uh, these various dissidents uh, within uh, within America uh, more generally. And the courts were aggressive in doing this. The courts were more than happy to comply. Um, judges gave speeches to juries as well as to general public audiences, uh, praising the Sedition Act, praising uh, the government, uh, denouncing those who had criticized the government. Uh, individual judges uh, went on the campaign trail with President Adams to support him uh, in the election uh, of 1800. Uh, Jeffersonian newspaper editors and Jeffersonian uh, activists were thrown in jail uh, for violating the Sedition Act uh, during this period. Uh, and judges were very instrumental uh, as, as part of that entire process. These were not simply neutral arbiters of trials, but in fact were aggressive um, players in those trials in, in implementing the act. One consequence of that, when the Jeffersonians won the election of 1800, they didn't look kindly upon the judges who had been throwing them in jail uh, the prior year. Uh, and as a consequence, um, uh, viewed uh, the judges very much as hostile um, to the new Jeffersonian administration and their actions uh, during this period um, as not only hostile to the Jeffersonians particularly, um, but also uh, problematic from the perspective of, of what it would mean to be a Republican uh, government uh, in the future, what it was democracy required uh, in the future. Uh, and ultimately, uh, they wound up impeaching one of the most notorious judges uh, engaged in these sedition trials, uh, Justice Samuel Chase. And, and although the impeachment trial uh, was ultimately unsuccessful in the Senate, that is, Chase was uh, acquitted uh, in the Senate, the impeachment uh, featured in part um, an emphasis on the way in which Chase conducted these sedition trials. Uh, and this was partially an effort by the Jeffersonians uh, to emphasize that judges in the future uh, should not behave in the ways in which uh, the court had behaved uh, in that period. So at least in this very early episode, we see an instance in which the courts are being given powers by the national government in order to act with the national government uh, to advance the, the government's wartime agenda. Um, basically, and judges were very much on board with that and agreed with what the rest of the government wanted to do and were concerned with trying to implement that. If we jump forward to the Civil War, on the other hand, um, judges were much more skeptical um, of what the government was doing during the course of the Civil War uh, and ultimately Reconstruction uh, that followed after. On the other hand, uh, the Republican government uh, in charge uh, fighting the Civil War uh, was not in any particular mood uh, to listen to the court. Uh, during this period. This is, after all, uh, basically the same court uh, that had handed down the Dred Scott decision, uh, which the Republican Party, of course, uh, viewed uh, as a truly awful decision, uh, contrary uh, to the very foundations of both the Republican Party and their understanding of American constitutionalism generally. A court then uh, that might be concerned with obstructing the course of the Civil War uh, was not, of course, a, a court uh, they were prepared uh, to listen to. Even so, um, even justices who disagreed with the majority of the court in, for example, Dred Scott, um, were also very skeptical of many of the things the government was doing uh, during this period. So, for example, uh, former Justice Curtis, who had been a, pro a, a prominent dissenter uh, in the Dred Scott case, was nonetheless tearing out his hair um, over the court's uh, inability or refusal uh, to hear a case arising out of the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, for example, Curtis thought that if a president uh, could, uh, on his own authority, uh, redistribute uh, such property uh, as slaves uh, without any um, compensation uh, to, the pro to the former property holders, uh, then constitutionalism had lost all uh, purpose and the court uh, was effectively uh, useless. But nonetheless, the court uh, stayed far away 
uh, from anything dealing with the Emancipation Proclamation, anything associated uh, with the freeing of the slaves uh, during, during the war. Likewise, in habeas corpus cases arising both um, from the war and its immediate aftermath um, and during Reconstruction, the court in those cases was somewhat more aggressive in testing uh, the limits of its power, uh, but soon discovered that to the extent that the government wanted to resist what the court wanted to say, uh, the court was powerless uh, to stop them. So when the court uh, sent marshals uh, to recover a prisoner that was being held by the U.S. military, the U.S. military simply turned the marshals away. Um, and when uh, Tawney, Chief Justice Tawney, uh, sends documents uh, to the president demanding that the prisoner be released, uh, Lincoln simply refuses to even bother answering the documents. Right? That this shows in, cl- in clear forms for the limits of judicial power uh, at a time in which the courts are not trusted and a time in which the, the, the government officials um, are convinced that the courts should not be trusted and cannot interfere uh, with the course of war and that the stakes were simply too high. So both they didn't trust the particulars of the court um, and also uh, they thought the stakes were too high to allow uh, second-guessing uh, under those kind of circumstances. By the 20th century, the situation is very different. The court is increasingly a powerful institution uh, by the 20th century, increasingly has a great deal of support from across the political spectrum, in part out of an understanding of what had happened in in earlier periods. So, for example, even progressives, uh, those on the political left, um, who after the World War I experience um, looked at the repression of free speech, for example, concerns about things like the Palmer raids, um, increasingly turned to the courts um, as a potential instrument to block those kinds of uh, behaviors in the, in the future. Um, there developed a, a strong civil libertarian tradition on the left, uh, which was relatively new, um, but which turned into the court and emphasized the power of the court, the importance of the court, uh, and upholding uh, those kinds of liberties. On the other hand, the, the political right, uh, growing out of the late 19th and early 20th century, were also great proponents of the court, uh, primarily because of the importance of the court in protecting property rights. Uh, during this period. So by the early and, late and mid part of the 20th century, there was widespread support uh, for the court across the political spectrum. We are no longer in a situation such as we saw during the Civil War uh, in which the courts were institutionally weak, such that other actors were very likely to ignore what the court said. Uh, for example, and the court might want to be careful about issuing orders that they didn't think uh, they could enforce, although there were some touch-and-go uh, decisions here and there during the New Deal uh, and the Great Depression, which, which tested that. But certainly for later periods um, uh, during the 20th century, there was little sense in which the court didn't have the institutional power uh, to get the other institutions to comply if they wished to, to issue an order. Um, and certainly the current court um, has no doubts about its own power uh, to strike down acts of Congress to force other institutions to comply with what the court um, itself uh, wants to accomplish. Uh, this court in particular is among the most active courts in American history in striking down uh, acts of Congress and is certainly convinced of its own importance uh, in interpreting uh, the Constitution and requiring other institutions uh, to go along with those interpretations uh, of the Constitution. So the court and other institutions are convinced of the court's uh, will. There seems little reason to think that the court uh, might feel like it needs to blink uh, even in wartime, um, out of fear of its own institutional power. On the other hand, though, the court sometimes agrees with other institutions about what needs to be done uh, during wartime. And that's something that we uh, need to recall as well, that justices uh, might not simply blink in the face of other institutions, but might think the other institutions are, in fact, doing the appropriate thing uh, under these circumstances and, as a consequence, might not want to interfere. 
So in the case of Korematsu, for example, there's a substantial amount of uncertainty among the justices as to whether or not this might, in fact, not be a reasonable war measure, um, such that they don't necessarily want to second-guess what the administration is doing uh, in, in conducting the war. Uh, likewise, in later cases, um, the justices um, themselves are concerned about uh, the communist threat and what the consequences uh, of the communist threat are to the nation. And as a consequence, we're somewhat uncertain themselves um, as to far, how far they ought to push uh, free speech rights uh, in the context of, of thinking about um, uh, the threat of communism. On the other hand, in other cases, they're more willing to second-guess uh, what other institutions are going to do. They're less trusting of what other institutions uh, have done in the name of fighting war. They're more skeptical of what those other institutions uh, have done. The Pentagon's Papers case is an example of that. The steel mill uh, seizure is an example of that. Cases in which the courts um, are willing to be skeptical um, have less reason to, to trust the other institutions and, as a consequence, are willing to stand up to them. And we may well see a similar kind of behavior in the present where the court feels comfortable with its own institutional power, uh, but at the same time may well be willing to look at what the government is doing and in some cases think that what the government is doing might be reasonable, might be the right way of fighting the war on terror, whereas in other circumstances may be more willing to be skeptical, look at what the government is doing and, and think that in fact this conflicts with what the court itself views um, as the appropriate uh, limits on government and the appropriate rights uh, that individuals have under the Constitution, uh, even during wartime. Well, well, I should say that since we uh, didn't reach uh, Professor Whittington as early as we were able to reach the others, he only had two hours uh, to prepare. Uh, couldn't tell, though, Keith. <laughs> uh, I'm very grateful to our panelists uh, for uh, popping up on such uh, short notice with such wonderful uh, presentations. It's our tradition... Uh, uh, custom in the Madison program to begin uh, the questioning with student questions. Uh, so uh, students should begin formulating their questions, but I'm going to behave tyrannically because I can't resist. In classic Aristotelian fashion, tyranny being the preference by the person in charge of his own interests over those of the community. And uh, press my own interests here because I'm dying to ask a question to Professor Gerhardt based on uh, the uh, very provocative and interesting comment that he made toward the end about the possibility and possible desirability of uh, treating some of these uh, questions of uh, civil liberties in wartime as non-justiciable. And as uh, Professor Gerhardt was spinning out uh, his, uh, possi that possibility, what was running through my mind, uh, Mike, was a much vilified uh, dissenting opinion by Justice Frankfurter that you'll know well in the West Virginia against Barnett case. Uh, now, whether or not Justice uh, uh, Frankfurter was right or wrong there, and most commentators think he is wrong, I've always been uh, impressed that something he says is nevertheless profoundly true. Whether he got the outcome right or not, something he said is profoundly true, and that is the way we treat, the way we will treat these civil liberties questions, and especially the power of the court, is bound to affect the political culture. It's bound to teach a lesson to people about how liberty is preserved. And Frankfurter was worried about teaching a lesson in which people came to believe that liberties, the preservation of liberty is the province of the courts. They step in to do that. The political branches needn't deliberate or think very much about that. They should see what they can get away with in order to advance uh, the goals that, uh, that they have and then, and then rely on the courts to uh, set set the limits. I think Frank, Frankfurter was worried about that, and I think he was right to be worried. And I'm wondering, Mike, if the worry behind proposing this as a possibility, and I realize you didn't endorse it, 
But I wonder if it's a similar worry that the, that treating these questions as justiciable could very well tend toward a public understanding, a political culture in which the democratically constituted body politic doesn't really think about these questions of liberty that really need to be taken into account when considering what the demands, what the requirements of wartime and the threats of wartime uh, are, that uh, we're setting things up to debilitate the democratically constituted people when it comes to thinking about questions of civil liberties? Or am I just reading too much into, uh, into your possibility, not proposal, but possibility? Um, no, I, no. <laughs> okay. Next question. No. Um, I, I, um, uh, Is that the worry? Yeah. Or well, that's a concern. I, I certainly think that's a concern. Uh, j maybe I could just take a step or two back and, and uh, take a liberty even of commenting on one or two of the other comments as, as a way of sort of delaying my answer. Um, uh, I'm inclined, of course, to agree with Keith's approach, which is to look at this, I think, from an institutionalist perspective. I don't necessarily think that's going to help us, though, figure out where the court's going to come out. Um, at the same time, I think uh, it, I would note that most of the examples given where the court has interfered with a military policy has been um, what I would even describe as a little bit around the edges. Um, it's, not, it's rarely gone to sort of the core uh, aspects of a military conflict. And the exceptions to what I've just said would probably be more in the Civil War era than they would be in the modern era. Um, but each time in the, in the Civil War era, for example, with the suspension of habeas corpus, Congress quickly ratifies what Lincoln does, for example. Uh, and later with the Milligan case, it's one case. It isn't necessarily uh, going to be viewed at the time as going comprehensively to what Lincoln's done. Sort of a long way of saying, I don't think any of the times the court has interfered with the military policy, it's had a broad effect on the military campaign. Um, now, having said that, the question then becomes, what are the incentives? What are the pressures? What are the things that would lead the court at this time to interfere with any of the military policies that are being challenged in any of these cases? I think there's got to be some clear legal authority the court's going to want to rely on when it does that. That's number one. Number two, it really would prefer to do it unanimously, but it's not. It's, I think it's pretty clear the court's going to be divided in these cases. That's not going to be good. That's not going to reflect very well on the court that it's divided over these particular questions. Non-justiciability, ironically, gives it a little bit of an out, but I don't think it's going to be enough to bring the court together. Um, and so where that ultimately leads me is to conclude that the justices are going to be per probably over the all over the map in these cases. Um, but if they do that, I think it does call attention to the fact that um, there's not been uh, as much of a dialogue between Congress and the President over these questions as perhaps there should have been, number one. Uh, number two, the American people were not part of that dialogue. And number three, had the court perhaps thought or gone in the direction of simply deciding, look, we just don't think we are, we are institutionally capable of interfering in these, in these circumstances, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure back on the democratic process and really does in, in a perverse way maybe, maybe in a good way, um, provide some impetus. Uh, we've gotten used to the fact that other institutions make decisions for us. 
uh, in an age that uh, Keith described where courts are being actively, I note the court is actively striking down congressional stuff, Keith, but not executive stuff. Um, but in an age in which the court does that, people get used to it. Uh, and they don't think as much about um, the quality of the democratic decision-making that takes place in which they might be able to help correct it rather than the courts would correct it. But in any event, to come back to your question, um, I, my concern about non-justice, or my interest in non-justiciability is to look for a way for the American people, for the public, to become more engaged with these policies rather than to defer almost reflexively to the chief executive um, without providing some check on what he's doing. Now, that would be consistent, would it not, with the point that Chris raised, uh, recalling Marshall's position in the, in the uh, Ellsberg uh, case about requiring that Congress face the question and make a decision on it. Yeah? Yeah. So, so th those are not incompatible. No, I don't but think they're at all. It may be a kind of golden mean. Yeah. I, I don't think they're at all incompatible. I mean, one thing you would think you'd want in a time of war um, is as much public dialogue, as much public deliberation as possible among all your national leaders about what's happening. Uh, for, for example, the Patriot Act was passed in a nanosecond, um, and maybe less than that. I don't know. I'm not a physicist, but Chris is. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, but, that, but that quality of deliberation is not inspiring. Um, and so it seems that what's missing in a lot of the stuff that we see being challenged in the court is deliberation by more than one branch. And that may be some cause for concern. Okay. Uh, the students have had plenty of time to deliberate about their, uh, their questions, so the floor is yours. Uh, yes, uh-huh. Chris, you want to start? I'll try. Uh, I, I mean, it, it is a good question, and it's it's reasonable to ask uh, wh whether whatever the effect of uh, war is on the Supreme Court, whether that's the right classification for the kinds of uh, issues that we're now uh, seeing. And I don't think that any of us have spoken to that, and uh, uh, fair of you to, uh, to raise it. Um, You've asked for a prediction about what it is that the court will do in these cases. I'm notoriously bad about uh, <laughs> predictions. Um, and so uh, I'm not going to venture very far in that direction. I think it's worth noting that in the argument of the ca on the uh, cases uh, pertaining to the detainees in Guantanamo Bay, and that was an argument held uh, uh, last week, a question of this kind did come up when uh, uh, Ted Olson, the Solicitor uh, General, arguing on behalf of the administration, said early in his argument uh, that it was important, I believe, I can't remember exactly what he had said, but he mentioned, made mention of the idea that the executive should have a lot of power in wartime. And Justice Stevens interrupted to say that, well, uh, uh, Solicitor General Olson, nothing in your argument depends on the question of whether or not we're at war uh, right now. And, and uh, in response to that, Olson conceded it was true that his argument didn't depend uh, in any way on that. And one can understand why his argument wouldn't be framed uh, in a way that would depend on that, because we don't have a declaration of war uh, in effect. And of course, that declaration would under the Constitution be for Congress, not for the, the president. So I, I, I think that will... I think that will matter. We are in a time when there is a, a perception of a kind of national security crisis. So I think a lot of the considerations that were adduced by 
members of the panel uh, don't depend on the, on the question of whether or not we're at war. Professor Gersh? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a very serious issue uh, if we're going to be uh, strict about the Constitution, about whether there's a declared war or not, and I think some of the justices uh, expressed anxiety about this, but I'll be reckless and, and make a prediction about this and, uh, um, and, and reference uh, both the war on terror generally and the Iraq war uh, as likely to uh, exert some influence on the court. Now, there are people on, on either side of the court, but I guess in trying to predict a decision, you want to sort of think about the people in the middle. Uh, and actually, the people in the middle is Justice O'Connor, right? <laughs> uh, um, one thing that strikes me about uh, the court in thinking about Guantanamo and these other cases is that there is a clear sense um, amongst at least some of the judges, and certainly in the broader polity, and this is going to be an issue in the presidential election uh, as well, uh, is that one of the lessons of the way we are fighting the war on terror, and particular, particularly the Iraq war, is that we supposedly are doing this unilaterally, right, and not, and not multilaterally. Uh, and I think the justices have um, views on this, uh, and the ones in the middle are thinking through this uh, particular lens. Um, and I think if you want to predict how this comes out, one thing you have to consider is the way the justices are thinking about how their decision is going to look abroad. Okay? That sounds like justice is doing foreign policy, justice is doing diplomacy, um, but as we've seen in the recent Lawrence case, uh, the gay rights case and the affirmative action case, the court is increasingly concerned about the United States' position in the world and how judges abroad are going to regard what they are doing. And there's been a, a large hue and cry about our treatment of these people. These are often cause celeb abroad. Uh, and I think the justices in thinking about uh, war um, are going to also be uh, taking sort of a position uh, sometimes to counteract President Bush, right, and to say, well, he may be boorish and he may have these these uh, hawks like Rumsfeld out there who don't give a damn about the rest of the world, um, but, you know, we talk to people abroad, we travel to Bellagio every, every summer, <laughs> <laughs> and we have our friends, and we're more sophisticated than that, uh, and we're not going to uh, put up with this. Uh, and I think that... Uh, uh, this is going to play into the decision in some way, maybe explicitly, uh, but but maybe not. I'll, I'll wait for the we've been to Bellagio. Uh, <laughs> but Mike Gerhardt. I just wanted to say very briefly, I think, I, I think as in many of the cases that come before the Supreme Court, everything's going to come down to how the court characterizes it. That's the and, – and you can't – and this is where Colleen's point about being a lawyer is a, is a curse and a blessing at the same time um, – it's, and that's literally how it comes down, and that's also why Chris's comment about Youngstown, I think, is extremely important. Youngstown is a case about the limits of inherent presidential authority. So if you think of this case as a case about inherent presidential authority, Bush loses. Um, one of the lessons of Youngstown is there was no policy that Truman was following. The policy would have been a declaration of war. With a declaration of war, you've got the clear policy. The president's acting at his strongest. That's Jackson's concurrence. And the case is easy. It's over. Um, to look at history, we've got an example of a president acting without a declaration of war in a time of emergency. He is one of the presidents who was um, challenged by a number of judicial uh, challenges. That's Lincoln. So in a weird way, you'd have to ask, is Bush more like Lincoln 
or is he more like Roosevelt? This comes back to the very good question about war. This is a different kind of war. We don't have a declaration of war here. So it forces the court, in a sense, to kind of look at a new situation and try and analogize it to old circumstances and figure out which of these older circumstances is is this most like. Professor Whittington? Um, Yeah, I think the other thing about thinking about this is a new kind of war is that it doesn't have the same kind of definite end date that lots of wars do, and that has some significance for the court because the court – takes a long time to hear these kinds of cases and oftentimes doesn't wind up coming in on these cases until the, the war is mostly done. Um, and that frees up the court in some ways to intervene more boldly than they could during the fighting itself. And so it's all well and good to say you can't try people in military courts uh, when the fighting is all over, uh, which is what the, the court winds up doing uh, during the Civil War and Reconstruction. It's okay to come in and strike down um, paper currency when the war is done. Uh, which is what they did after the Civil War. Um, It's another thing to come in in the middle of the war uh, when there may still be consequences to what you do um, and tell the court uh, you have to release the the German saboteurs, right, which is what happens in World War II, and the court decides not to do that. Um, Now, that's partially because there's um, an institutional responsibility there. Do you really want to second-guess uh, the military and the executive when we're in the midst of fighting when the consequences might be pretty severe? Um, but there's also questions of perception. That is, to the extent you're still involved in the war uh, and the crisis is fresh, um, the justices, like other branches, are quite likely to think lots of things are necessary uh, in, in the state of the emergency. Um, in this context, though, this is sort of an ongoing war in which there's no definite end day. It's not clear when it, when it will conclude. And, and that has, I think, um, awkward consequences for the court, that the court will be intervening uh, when the issue is still a live one, when, the, when there's still significance to the court taking action here, not just for history but for the present conflict. Um, and I think that will make it more complicated uh, for the court uh, to, to want to intervene aggressively uh, in some of these cases when there, when there might be negative consequences down the road. On the other hand, we're also increasingly distant from September 11th, for example, and so some of these cases um, uh, take on a different resonance when we're a couple years down the road uh, from domestic terrorism as such. And so uh, my sense, I think, is that the court uh, will likely be somewhat more skeptical about what's necessary to stop domestic terrorism now than they might have been a couple of years ago. Um, and as a consequence, um, uh, be more skeptical of, of uh, the president's claims that they need to be able to hold American citizens, for example, captured on American soil um, uh, without any kind of procedures. On the other hand, the court might be um, somewhat hesitant to involve itself very deeply uh, in military operations and the capturing of people on battlefields and intervene in the midst of that, which are going to have continuing long-term consequences when it's not so clear uh, what, the, what the effects of the court intervening in that might be. Professor Sheehan? Yeah, I would just add that uh, there's no sovereign power with whom to negotiate. And so I I think he said it very well. I mean, we don't know when, if ever, there'll be an end to this. How do you form a truce? And that's partly why I emphasized um, the seamy side of war as if there were any other side. But uh, that the politics of this, um, I think we have to, to face it and we have to confront it head on, that this isn't just simply a question um, for legal technicalities. And I worry about what our Supreme Court justices do on their summer vacation uh, when they formulate foreign policy often in nice speeches abroad. Um, it's, it's not their job. They don't have that kind of information. And 
they don't tend to think. Their training is not to think uh, politically. Now, hopefully, uh, there are those members who do, but usually when I hear discussions about the way the court is thinking, uh, it's not in terms of the way one has to think about foreign policy. And that I find disconcerting as they're moving ahead on these cases. Okay, student questions. Yes, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, this question. Oh, detainees, detainees, yeah. Mike uh, Gerhardt, I know you've thought about the, uh, you know, the filibusters and so forth. Will these <laughs> issues become part of the debate over judicial nominations? Uh, thought about filibusters, engaged in filibusters, done it all. Um, well, I, I think that um, the short answer is I, I, I'm not sure there's going to be a direct connection between the judicial selection process and the war on terrorism. Um, no doubt. President Bush will argue, and his supporters in Congress will argue, if he happens to be the one to fill the vacancy, that he needs this vacancy filled quickly because he doesn't want to be distracted from the war on terrorism. No doubt about that. He's already arguing that with respect to lower court appointments. But with respect to whomever he nominates to the Supreme Court, it's just quite unlikely that that person is going to have any record uh, to speak of on these issues. And even if the person had a record to speak of, he or she wouldn't speak about it during the confirmation process. Um, so I think it would not... While it might be a concern that would come up in the hearings, I don't think it would be one that would make a difference to the outcome. Leah Silver, and then we're going to open it for general questions. Leah? Chris Eisner, would you like a crack at that one? You know, let me me make sure I've got the question. The the question is uh, whether or not the court itself thinks about its role in these kinds of terms, or is that right? I'm not sure. Uh, let me let me first say I, I certainly think the court thinks self-consciously about its role, and and um, 
what its responsibilities are in uh, wartime. So the, the Chief Justice, for example, has written a book about uh, all the laws, but one about the uh, uh, court's uh, uh, tendency to defer to other branches uh, during wartime. So he's certainly thought about that uh, considerably. I don't see how any of the other justices could avoid uh, uh, doing that. Um, uh, I think it's always the case with uh, uh, judges, uh, given the uh, nature of their training and their task, that decisions that they make in one case will affect their decisions uh, in other. That is the principal constraint that I think that uh, all of them acting in good faith uh, accept, that is that their job is to behave in a way that is uh, principled rather than merely contingent and responsive to particular um, circumstances. On the other hand, it would be possible for the uh, court to draw a distinction between a set of cases involving foreign affairs and wartime and uh, um, uh, or, or uh, security crises and uh, other sets of uh, cases. And I would reiterate what Keith Whittington said uh, earlier. This is a very strong and very aggressive uh, court. And I would be somewhat surprised, having already indicated my <laughs> poor track record of predictions, but I would be somewhat surprised if this court were to defer in the military cases, uh, the detention cases now, facing it, and if that were to cause it to defer um, in other uh, areas, I think if it were to do so, it would say, well, that's a different set of considerations. Mike Gerhardt. Uh, again, hopefully br briefly, I just I think it's a great question, and I think one thing to think about is why we're talking about the Supreme Court at all. Um, I mean, here we are in the midst of this war on terrorism. We find ourselves focusing on the Supreme Court, um, and it's it's been a surprise to a number of observers. I think one reason for that is because these are very aggressive policies being employed by the administration. Um, and I think in, in, in oftentimes one way to understand constitutional law um, is to look at who's, in a sense, um, who are the parties that are sort of being opposed to each other in a given circumstance. You could think of these cases as the administration versus the court because the administration is taking positions that are curtailing the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. If that's the case, I'm pretty confident I know who's going to win. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay, uh, floor is wide open. Who would like it? Professor Sigmund. We've heard a lot about what the court is likely to do. Uh, I'd like to hear from the panel what the court should do in the Padilla case, the American citizen. Oh, that's good. I thought you were going to say we've heard what the court is likely to do. Now I want to know what the court is certain to do. <laughs> okay, what, what should they do? Uh, let's see, we're in the opposite order. Keith, do you want to have a shot at that one? Uh, I was waiting to hear what other people said uh, <laughs> uh, about what the court ought to do in that case. I, I have to admit, I think that, that that's the, the case where it seems to me the administration is likely to be on the weakest ground and where the court may feel the most comfortable um, acting against it and should, I, I guess. I mean, it's um, uh, that, yeah, it's, it's pushing all the buttons. I mean, it's American citizen. The process is minimal. They're captured on American soil. Uh, the crimes are less clearly about war and, and clung closer to criminal justice issues. Um, so I, I mean, I think that that's, that that's one where the court in particular um, ought to feel uh, reasonably comfortable intervening, um, perhaps intervening in a relatively modest way, that is to push the administration to engage in some process but not trying to lay out everything that the administration might have to do uh, in dealing with these kinds of cases, but at least sort of prodding uh, the administration uh, forward and to, and to open up more than they have now. Professor Sheehan? I think they should stay out of it. Professor Kirsch? Um, 
Well, uh, I think the more important question for me is what the administration should be doing about Padilla. I think, I think that this sort of civil libertarian uh, approach has its drawbacks um, in the sense that uh, I think if it were a little more accommodating to the needs of the executive in conditions of war, that the president might have been um, uh, more likely to institute, for example, military tribunals and military procedures. Um, but the civil libertarian narrative is so strong that the, the, the idea is either you give someone a full procedural due process rights or you stand your ground and say, I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to take the firmest position and I don't want courts in there. So I think um, that the administration sh should, the administration should certainly have rudimentary uh, procedures, uh, but I would to some extent um, cast the blame for them not doing this uh, on, on the sort of uh, radicalism of the other side, historically speaking. Uh, and this idea, you know, that everyone sort of erupted when people talked about military tribunals. Military tribunals are actually a lot better than nothing. Uh, and, peop and people should, should no, people should view that as a positive. Okay, a little better. <laughs> what will you take, Chris? <laughs> Look, Lincoln, all sorts of, uh, I think we tend to forget the history of military tribunals. Uh, and, you know, no, Lincoln's reputation is not exactly, uh, you know, gone in the, in the toilet because of the way he conducted the Civil War. I mean, people have these little footnotes. But essentially, uh, he won the war. And, uh, you know, history judged that that's, that was right. Mike Garrett. There, there's Keith's chance to talk about Lincoln as war criminal, but well, um, I, I, um, uh, I, I wish the administration had conducted it in such a way that it would have been possible for the court not to get involved. Um, but having said that, I think these enemy combatant cases, at least as far as my personal opinion is concerned, go too far because what you're talking about there is denying any jurisdiction whatsoever in a federal court. Um, to examine this and to deny access to lawyers for these people to consult. That is beyond um, the norm, at least as far as we've defined it up till now, in the United States as far as due process is concerned. And so uh, if you're asking the question about should, I would say the court ought to at least ex exercise some minimal judicial review in those cases. Chris? I'm grateful to have a question about what the court should do rather than a question about uh, uh, prediction. Uh, I, I think at a minimum what the court should do if it wants to be cautious is to uh, hold that the, the detention of Padilla is unconstitutional because not authorized by uh, Congress. That's if it wants to be cautious because it wants to see how things should uh, unfold. But I think there's an individual rights minimum here that, that if push comes to shove, if there's a congressional authorization, the, the court uh, ought to uh, insist upon and, and that uh, – Minimum is that uh, before somebody can be subjected to military trial in a tribunal or uh, to detention, there ought to be a determination by an independent judge uh, that that person is, in fact, a uh, combatant. Uh, in the Quirin case, which uh, the Nazi saboteurs case, which a couple of my co-panelists have uh, mentioned, it was conceded by uh, the defendants in that case that they were combatants, that they were German soldiers. The question here is whether or not the administration can treat somebody as a combatant simply by declaring that that person is a, a combatant. And I, I would add, you know, there's, there's fundamental 
constitutional text at stake here. The uh, habeas corpus provision of Article 1 uh, provides that uh, the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended except in such cases of rebellion or invasion where national security shall uh, uh, require it. And I quote it. I don't, I don't think I've got it exactly right, but I have the key terms. I quote it at some length to note two things about it. Uh, one is it's in Article 1, and the traditional understanding has been that except in the rarest of circumstances, that is a suggestion that this is something that requires congressional authorization. The second is uh, that the two circumstances specified by the Constitution are rebellion or invasion. Lincoln had a rebellion. George Bush does not have a rebellion. And I, ha I have to. I should have done this when Scott Novick asked his question. I don't mind the title, Effect of War on the Supreme, Co uh, uh, on the Supreme Court of the United States, because it is agnostic about whether or not we've got a war. But the idea that we've got a war on terrorism right now, I mean, I always thought one of the uh, kind of... Uh, um, indicia of uh, war was the uh, level of collective sacrifice that it required, the coming together of the uh, nation uh, and um, uh, around uh, civic responsibilities uh, and others. And you take a look at this war on terrorism that we're uh, fighting right now. It's a war that's directed at certain people, usually minorities within our country, and requires no sacrifices on the part of uh, most of us. The official message in the wake of September 11th was, uh, go ahead, take your vacations uh, travel, uh, don't worry about it, the airlines are safe, the courts are broken. I don't buy that. I don't buy that as a condition of war or as a... With occasional orange alerts, meaning just kind of watch out. <laughs> I'll lay aside whether or not Lincoln actually faced a rebellion. But Bush has an invasion, at least, right? I mean, if, if you have, you know, terrorists on American soil conducting attacks right, on the, in the name of foreign powers, um, I, although not necessarily nation states, you have the right? courts, it's a kind you have of the, invasion. Keith, you have the courts open. That is, that's, there's, that. there's an, an invasion. You can have an invasion where there's a good reason to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, which is that simply you don't have the rule of law in operation anymore. That's invasion. That's rebellion. That's not today. Right. Isn't it great about universities? You always have a spectrum of opinion. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes, I guess. Okay. Uh, uh, Professor, tell us. Having um, 
of the assumption that you're, you're making, um, and I think that Hamilton was making, was that there was a war that Congress had stated was a war. And can you uh, can you really have that kind of uh, that that uh, notion of executive power without the transfer by Congress in a way to the president the ability to conduct? Ken. Uh, well, I, I do not believe uh, that um, Hamilton was solely speaking of, of conditions of declared war. Um, the executive power and the power of the president to act as commander-in-chief um, is not specifically limited uh, to times of war, right? The executive power is there to do whatever is necessary. Uh, in when there was a threat to the security of the nation, not just in declared wars. And I think that's, that's plain in the constitutional text. Now, on your side, uh, let, me, let me say this. I mean, I think the founders left this deliberately ambiguous. I mean, there are constitutions where there are emergency powers that can be declared and, and, and dictatorial powers for temporary periods, and the founders deliberately decided not uh, to, to do that, to have that in our constitution. Uh, and so they had the war power, they had the president's responsibilities as commander-in-chief, and they had this general well of executive powers, and they did not clarify uh, it, this into hermetic categories, and I think that was partially deliberate, um, because I think ultimately it was going to be worked out po through political struggle, and whoever was asserting these powers would have to face um, a certain amount of resistance if it was not widely believed that it was justified. Uh, and uh, there's disagreement about that on the panel, but uh, I think that uh, in a way that they, that that the ambiguity is 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 uh, uh, deliberate. Chris, where are you on this one? On the question of the, formali the for for no, formalism, is, is the the idea here that formalism actually of a declaration of war provide a kind of um, protection, no. even when it licenses extraordinary means? I'm not sure that I, I that I that the I believe that the declaration of war is the crucial uh, factor uh, here. I think the that formalism is useful, but I think it's uh, useful as part of a decision about when we're going to commit national resources um, and and lives of uh, our um, young men and women to uh, a military uh, uh, effort. Uh, I don't think it's the crucial question going either direction about uh, whether or not uh, the executive should have special powers to respond to a crisis. I do think that the executive sometimes needs unusual powers to respond to a crisis, even when war hasn't been uh, declared. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are real limitations on what the executive can do even after a war has been declared. So I, I agree about the importance of the formalism and regret that we seem to have, have pushed it aside, but I don't think its consequences are principally in this area of civil liberties. Uh, did anyone else on the panel want to say anything on that? Uh, yeah, Mike, go, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I'm going to echo what Chris said. I, I mean, I, I agree that the Declaration of War is a, is a significant um, option in the Constitution, but I think it's pretty clear and actually relatively well settled that uh, the executive can use military force in other circumstances pursuant to statutes, for example. Um, and so I think it doesn't get us out of this quandary. And we're delighted to have with us uh, here uh, this year in the Woodrow Wilson School distinguished former Congressman uh, Mickey Edwards, who's had to actually act politically on some of these uh, uh, questions, especially in the uh, 1980s. Uh, Mickey, you had your hand up. Yeah, I, uh, I was going to ask whether or not the non-finite nature of this war uh, against terror doesn't really 
likely, uh, make it more likely that the uh, court will intervene going back to Ken Kirsten's point because if if they fail to do so in a situation like this and they've got a conclusion that one can foresee, they have granted these powers for the foreseeable future. Doesn't that make it more likely that the court's going to step in to prevent that from happening? Ken? I, I do predict that that would be, that would indeed be the result. I mean, I th I, I think this court is is going to set some minimal uh, process on this, in part for that reason, to get at Justice Stevens' comment. I think that's very pers uh, very persuasive. Uh, uh, so, if if the question is 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 uh, one of prediction, I, I think that's particularly important. Ultimately, I think I think you know the idea that this war is open ended, right? As I sort of hinted at. Before, I think, I think that makes this really a question of foreign policy, right? The nature, the nature of the war um, as open-ended for the foreseeable future uh, means that the whole foreign policy of the country is, is to a certain extent on the, on the table. And I think that there are distinct visions as to how this should be uh, uh, fought. Uh, and there are justices on the court who believe that certain basic human rights, and I use the term advisedly, um, are very important uh, to the success of the United States uh, in winning this war um, and, and sort of the need for allies and, 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 and basic respect for, for, for human rights. And for that reason, the open-ended nature of the war, um, it, it bleeds this, this legal question into a question about how do we best win the war, and I think that... Uh, um, that, that they are going to take a position on that. Mike Gerhardt? Um, I think we're back in the realm of ought, you know, what should be done. And I think the indefinite nature of this increases the likelihood that the Supreme Court would, I think, recognize uh, the importance of the rule of law here. For example, due process, the, the suspension of habeas corpus that Chris has referred to. And for a very basic reason that nobody's mentioned so far tonight, um, our Constitution and the constitutional protections it provides are one of the things that distinguish us as a country. It's one of the things that we are fighting for, that we're fighting to protect in this war. And I think that's not going to be lost on the Supreme Court. Colleen, uh, Chan, Professor Chan? Yeah, I'm just thinking back to what Ken just said, and, and it sounds that the way we're thinking this through, I mean, good American citizens care about the future of the country. Uh, that were well respected by foreign nations and so on, but is this the job of the Supreme Court? Um, I, I think the way we're talking about this in a, is in a very loose sense, and I can see the Supreme Court becoming more powerful than Congress in some of these kinds of questions if we keep going down this route. And I'm wondering what the other panelists think about that. It, I mean, we started out talking about civil liberties and the protection of civil liberties, but now we're talking about something very different. Um, in the cases before the court, do you think that there, um, that there are violations of civil liberties that should not have been taken? Or can you imagine that there are cases such as these in which um, people ought to be detained, including United States citizens, uh, in the way that they are being detained and have been detained before, in, I would think, in war times in many nations? Um, or is that simply inappropriate in a, in a uh, country like the United States with the Bill of Rights? Mickey, do you have an opinion on that? Let me look at what. Actually, uh, I had a thought about something Professor uh, Sheehan said before. 
probably not the role of the courts to make foreign policy, but neither is it the exclusive authority of the president. Uh, right. I, I actually thought that what Professor Eisenberger said in the beginning, talking about what was missing here was congressional authorization, is really a very important piece. Spoken like a true former congressman. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, to belittle the, uh, not to belittle the point. Would he uh, make a prediction about what Congress is likely to do? <laughs> well, well, Mickey, do you have a view? I mean, what, how do you think Congress would – what if things were shifted? Uh, you know, Chris has raised a couple of times this uh, Thurgood Marshall point out of, um, out of the Pentagon Papers case. What, what would Congress do if, if Congress had to take responsibility for making a decision, if it was taken – pushed back into their laps by the courts? But would it be, let me put it to you this way, would it be good for American Republican government, constitutional government, American democracy, for Congress to be forced to handle it? Yes. Yeah. Good. Well, we have time for just one more uh, question. Who would, who would like to ask it? Uh, yes, uh, in, in the back, you, sir. I'd like to go back to the very first question that you asked in terms of... My Frankfurter question? Yeah. Very briefly, make two observations on this. Uh, one is that I think that, perhaps naively, but but all the all of the justices take seriously their constitutional uh, role, and and despite the impression that what they're doing uh, is a way of responding to political expectations or a kind of sociological uh, surveying, I think that all the justices on all sides of this question 
believe that it is their duty to uh, try to interpret the Constitution as best they can and apply it consistently with their responsibilities in their judicial role, and that is what they try to do. So I, I think there – I may have misunderstood this aspect of, of uh, the question, but I actually don't think that they are simply responding in this kind of sensitive way to – uh, public expectations. Uh, the second is to say that with regard to the, uh, the suggestion that uh, somehow when courts decide questions, it saps debate elsewhere in society, I've always been quite skeptical about uh, that argument. I suppose it could be uh, true, but it seems to me equally possible that one of the things that uh, court decisions do is to focus arguments elsewhere uh, in society. This politics doesn't stop because the court uh, makes a, a decision. It hasn't stopped on abortion. It didn't stop after uh, the Dred Scott decision. It won't stop after uh, these. So I think that the, the court is one of the actors that spurs constitutional deliberation within our system. Well, that's an argument I want to have, and Chris and I will have it sometime, but unfortunately we can't have it tonight. Uh, but I do want very much to thank all of you for coming out on a rainy evening. Uh, I'm sorry, very sorry that you didn't get exactly what you bargained for when you uh, came out, and I'm sure that Professor Epstein is sorry about that as well. But I venture to say that you got something very worthwhile, and I'm extremely grateful for our panel, for, to our panelists who on short notice came to provide it uh, for us. Please join us for a reception uh, in honor of Walter Murphy in the back. Thank you.